Well, let's do good morning. <laughs> Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. We are disciples of Jesus, the generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. And today, we're actually going to talk about how all of that really happens, why who we are makes it possible for us to fulfill that great mission. Now, of course, today is the last day of our Transform, Transform series. Hopefully, it's been uh, an encouraging one for you, discovering how who God makes us makes all the difference and uh, how we transform the world. But just a review of some of the main things that we've learned so far, because they'll matter today. Uh, the first one is that we are who God says we are. Isn't that great that we are created? God designed us. We're not who we feel that we are. We're not who culture says we are. We're who God says we are. And uh, we also recognize that uh, good is what God says is good, right? That uh, good ethics reflect God's morals because just like we are who God says we are, good is what God says is good. Also, that God created us in His image. Male and female, He created us, so there is a, a difference and a beauty in gender that God designed in that. And He created families to reflect Him, which means that there was roles in the family for male and female, for masculine and feminine. And the purpose of that wasn't to create some type of power structure but to reflect who he is so we could transform the future, raising great homes. And in those homes, we've discovered that healthy families are families that have high love and high structure, right? That's how God parents. It's how he designs it to, to work. And so all of those things uh, kind of work together as we talk today about the, the last portion of transformed, how we transform really culture in the entire world, how God's designed to do that was through the church which happens to be a great family. Before we do, however, let's one more time remind ourselves of the memory verse. If this is your first time with us, don't worry about it. You can just say it along with us and it'll start to stick. If you've been doing this every week, uh, challenge yourself. See how well uh, you've gotten to know this passage over the past month. Here we go. Three, two, one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Second Corinthians 5, 17. Again, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Second Corinthians 5, 17. Oh, isn't that a wonderful passage? I tell you, even this past week as I was going through, you know, um, have you ever had those times where you, you look back on your old self and you say, old self, you were a doofus? <laughs> Not just me, right? Sometimes then I get embarrassed about old self and doofusy things that old self has done. And I'm grateful for the grace and forgiveness of God. And this passage has freed me, allowed me to go back to it and say, oh, I'm, I am in Christ. There's a new creation in me. Old Aaron is dead, and gratefully, I'm, I've been transformed in Christ, and there's a new creation in me, and I can move ahead in that grace of God. Uh, it's a wonderful passage to bring up anytime uh, that old you bears his head and says, hey, you should be embarrassed of what I you know, regret. No, 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 I don't regret. The Lord brought me here, and he's at work in my life today. I'm a new creation, and so are you. If you haven't had a chance to memorize that passage, I encourage you to do it now. If you're here with us, obviously, take that connection card uh, out, and it has that uh, memory verse attached to it. If you're at home, your Bible has that passage, and so you could just copy it down and memorize it, which is good. All right, since you have your Bibles out, let's turn them to 1 
Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be talking about church today. Uh, and so we had some really good churchy gospel music to set us up. We talked about churchy things that we do as uh, bringing missions to the world. Now let's talk about how the church is structured. And that's going to be today. 1 Timothy is one of three epistles, which are letters in the New Testament, that were written specifically to talk about how church is to operate. They're called pastoral epistles. And they were written by Paul to different uh, pastors that he was mentoring and said, hey, this is how the Holy Spirit says to set church up. So that's why we are in 1 Timothy today. And it was written to Timothy, who happened to be serving in Ephesus. And uh, here's three truths that we're going to get out of uh, today, uh, three truths about church that we're going to find in 1 Timothy. The first truth I want you to see is here that church is a family. And in order to kind of punctuate that, let's just talk about how this passage even begins. Uh, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of uh, Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear some family language happening in there? Yeah, in fact, if you read the New Testament, you're going to discover that family language is used amongst Christians more than anything else. We're called brothers and sisters. God is our heavenly Father. There's a reason for that. Remember, there's only two institutions in the entire world that God set up. The first one is family, and the second one is church. And they're both designed to reflect who he is. So it shouldn't surprise us that family language is used for the church. This is a part of the kind of the same thing. We have uh, families and the home, and then the church is itself a family, which is pretty fantastic, right? Uh, in Second uh, or First Timothy chapter five. We're going to read verses one and two. I want you to see here. We're going to be all over it today. Even talks about how we deal with one another. Look what it says in chapter five, verse one. It says, "Don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he was your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with absolute purity." Right? We treat one another in a way that a healthy family is supposed to treat brothers and sisters, how we treat one another with a lot of love and a lot of respect. That's pretty fantastic. And the cool thing about this, though, church is not just a family. All of us are part of families. Some of us have really healthy families, and others grew up in really not-so-great families. And sometimes if you've come up from a, grew up in a very not-so-great family, we project all that brokenness and think, well, maybe church is awful too. But here's the difference. Church is not just your family. It is God's family. And he does things different. First Timothy chapter 3, if we're going to flip over into that there, uh, we'll be reading verses 14 and 15. It says, uh, Paul, or Peter writes, or sorry, Paul writes, he says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if anyone, so if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which, the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery, uh, which is from godliness springs, uh, godliness springs, is great. He says here, the church is the household of God. Isn't that crazy? And that's why he says, this is how we're supposed to do it. We're not supposed to operate the church the way that you grew up, because you might not have grown up in a perfect home. Right? And so Scripture gives us a way of saying God wants us to set up His family, the church, to operate in a certain way. And we're all supposed to, as we are born again into this family, agree that this is the culture that we have in the church. Not because of the way that we grew up or how culture tells us to do it, because God says, I want my family to run 
this way. And it says there it's a mystery, and it's wonderful. It's a, the mystery from which godliness springs is great. And church is a, is a mighty, wonderful mystery. So this is God's household, and our identity then comes in from that, just like you have your identity from your family. You carry your, in our culture, your last name, right, comes from the family that you came from. You bear the name of Christ. And that means something, right? But that means that it's not just the name that you bear, but also you bear the heritage of that family. If you are in Christ, this is yours. And why are we part of God's family? Is it because we deserved it? Because we who are in this room or watching online were just so holy and pure and wonderful, such great worthy people that God says, I choose you because you're the best out of all the humans? Let's go back to chapter 1. And uh, go verses 12 through 14. It says, Paul writes, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considers me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You're in God's family. You're not here because you're so great. You're here because our God is great. And he loves you a lot. And so he's given you grace and he has adopted you. See, we're not in the church because of our feelings. That's why we go back to that first week. We talked about, I am who God says I am. Have you ever had times you felt unworthy of being a Christian? Done something so awful, the devil's there to tell you you're just this horrible person. And you're like, you're right, devil. I am a horrible person. God can't love me. That's not how it works. I'm not a Christian because I feel like I'm Christian. I'm not saved only because I feel like I'm saved. I'm saved because God has said I am saved. My sonship isn't based upon the opinions of others. It's not based upon other people in the world saying, well, Aaron, I think that you are a righteous man. That has nothing to do with with it. I am in God's family because he adopted me. It is based on him and him alone, which is really fantastic because he has chosen us and he has adopted us and he has loved us. And he has called us his own. I am a child of God because he made me his child. That's why. And if you are in Christ, a new creation is in you as well. You are also a child of God. And so it has nothing to do with feelings or anybody else. It has everything to do with the reality of who God is. And he has chosen you. Now, as a member of God's household, we have then the obligation to do things God's way, don't we? This is his house, his rules. Which is why we read verses uh, 18 through 20. It goes into there. It says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you might fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which, have re- uh, which some have rejected and have suffered a shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, Hymenaeus and Alexander serve for us as an example of what not to do. They were people, Christians, right, who were in the church, who decided to do things their way, to do what was right in their eyes, to run God's family according to their plan. And it didn't work well, did it? In fact, Scripture says that that it's going to lead to their destruction, right? That's what we don't want to have happen. Let me turn my page. All right, because of that, we say that the church must act as God's family, right? We have to, we have an obligation as well as a responsibility then not to live how we want to live, 
not to do things our way, but together say, let's do things God's way, even if it doesn't make sense to us, even if culturally we, it, it doesn't make sense or it's not culturally uh, the way that the world operates around us, that's okay. We're not part of this world anymore. We're part of God's family. And remember, what is the number one purpose of family? To bear God's image. That's why he set it up the way he did. God made us male and female in his image. He created family to represent that and to, to show the world who he is. Same thing as the church. So how we operate is very important. It does give a, the world an idea of who God is. We get to represent his character, his nature, and, and uh, who he is based upon even how we work. So if God's family has shown that God is high structure, high love, then the church needs to be high structure, high love as well, right? And that's exactly what we find, right? We find that the church is definitely a high love entity, isn't it? Right? We, we see that there's a lot of grace and all of that kind of stuff. Chapter 2, I think, might even... Verse 1, it says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, that this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. That's high love. Right? It says, that I, I don't care who is in office. I don't care who's the, the person that's out there. I don't care who the politicians are or the people. Pray for them. Right? Why? Grace. We're not saved because we were so good. And God says, I, and here in Scripture, God has a desire to love all people. That's a lot of love. In fact, it's not just that we have grace in the body for other people. We have grace as the body in the community, don't we? When the family of Christ moves into town, it should change the neighborhood, shouldn't it? Or we're supposed to be agents of peace and of goodness and of kindness, we're supposed to impact our neighbors in such a way they're like, wow, that's a pretty cool family. And we do that through our expressions, our actions of love and of grace and of charity and of mercy in the communities in which we live. And that reaches all the way to the people that serve in office. And in the time that this was written, it was a really horrible emperor named Nero who liked to light Christians on fire all the way down to our neighbors, some of whom can be stinkers. We are supposed to be people who love and who pray and who show kindness. High love. And if we can show kindness to emperors who are burning us alive, can we show kindness to one another? Yeah, of course. Right? It should be a lot easier. Who have the same heavenly father, who have the eternal kingdom together, who have all received the grace of God? Of course we do. High love. So the focus on, on, on this, we have to begin with the culture of love in the church. If our church is not a loving entity... We've missed the mark, haven't we? Which is why our, our, our mission statement for the church, it says the Christian Church of Estes Park is a fellowship of believers with a great commitment to the great commandments and the great commission. And then we, we line that out. What does that mean? Was to love God, right? To love, uh, to grow in God's love, to know God's love, to, to love God and others, and to go and share God's love. Now, in that, there's a word that's all through. It's love. If our church is not loving, we've missed the mark, Right? We don't want to be a high-structure, low-love entity. That's not God's family. And so love is affection. Love is choosing to serve one another above myself. That's what it means. It means to show kindness. It means to show to grace. It means to say, if you're hurting, I'm going to hurt. And if you're celebrating, I'm going to celebrate. That's love, fellowship. This is a place of fellowship. 
But God's family isn't supposed to just be loving, right? Uh, families that have just lots of love but no structure are chaotic, right? Which lead to entitled children. And unfortunately, we find is that sometimes churches are all about the love, but there's no structure. And then you have really entitled, grace-abusing Christians, right? Who just believe that they can, you know, do whatever they want and live their lives with all the sin and do everything their own way and then just feel like the God owes it to me to give me all kinds of grace. And we read about the two of those guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, earlier on. This is not where we want to be. There is structure. And so in that love that God gives us and we're supposed to express to each other and to the world, we have to also recognize that there is a structure to the church. And what is that structure? Well, verses eight, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, right after he talks about being loving, right? How we're supposed to pray for all those and how we're supposed to even pray for the Gentiles and, and all this, right? He goes on to say, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I want the women to dress modestly and with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold and pearls and expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman uh, should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became the sinner. But women will continue to be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Now, I know this is a hard passage for us in our culture, right? Oh, yeah, it is. You're like, how dare you read that? It's in the Bible. That's how I dare read it, and it's good. Remember first, brothers and sisters, before we get to structure, we had love. That's why in the beginning of this, there's that word, therefore. Verse 8, therefore, the very first word. Right after it says, you are supposed to be highly loving, therefore, this is how we're supposed to put that into practice. There's no structure without great love. And there's the therefore. And so it says, listen, because God has invited us into a different kind of family, there's a different way in which we're supposed to live. Now, men are supposed to serve God in their masculinity and and women are supposed to serve God in their femininity. God affirms both because he made you both. And so men and their ability to be productive and protective and directive, you see that here. And women also serving God, being relational and civilizing and nurturing, you see that here as well. This is not a prohibition for wearing nice clothes or doing things for a woman as some people have said, but it's just saying, listen, let your real beauty first come from the inside. And it's not a prohibition for guys to go out and to, to actually do big things for God, right? It's saying, listen, first make sure that you're serving God in your heart. Lift your holy hands first to God. The idea is in men in our masculinity, women in your, in your femininity, serve the Lord and be affirmed in that. And the church is God's family, and, and it's supposed to act like God's family. And therefore, we see that the church is also structured as a family. How God put the church together is supposed to mimic the family which he designed. So if you want to look at how the church is supposed to be uh, created, look at how God designed family. This is how it's supposed to operate. Now, as members of God's family, we all have roles and responsibilities, right? That's part of the structure, and that's part of what we read in here. Chapter 3, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, which, as we get to that, it talked about, okay, there's this role also for women in there, but there's also men. It says, here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. 
Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not giving to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see to it that his own children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment of the devil. He must also be of good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace or into the devil's trap. There's a lot of regulations there, isn't there? And you notice the test? Look at how he runs his family. That's the test. All right, it's because the church is a family. And because we, we bear the church uh, bears the, the, uh, the image of God just as family does. Just as in family, there's different roles, and those roles have a gender base because we were made in God's image, male and female. In the church, there are roles based upon gender, not based upon value, but gender because it's how we reflect God. So how do we reflect God in this? Well, that passage that I read at the end of chapter 2 that says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. Or that passage there that made you all really uncomfortable, right? that is not bashing women. It's not saying that women are awful or bad or, or somehow less than or anything like that. He's saying in the structure of the family, right after that, he talks about leadership in the church. That's contextually what he's talking about. It's not saying that moms shouldn't teach their little boys, as some people, crazy enough, have thought it to mean. It's not what it means. It says in the church, as a family, there's, there's a structure. And in that structure, with authority in it, that there was masculine leadership. Because how do we know that? The very, very next passage, right? The very next verse talks about masculine leadership. What is it supposed to be in the leadership of the church? All right? And so we're talking about authority. The rule or the role that he talks about in there is overseer, right? If anyone uh, wants to be an overseer, they deserve a noble task. Chapter one, that's what he's talking about. Why is that role reserved for masculine leadership? Well, because it reflects God. And just as in the family, there was the masculine leadership in there. Look at the, what he says here in, in this uh, passage. Actually, there's another place that even in Scripture talks about this role even more. It says, Therefore I exhort the elders amongst you to pastor the flock of God amongst you, exercising oversight. And in there, there, there are little parentheses, and there are the English translations of Greek words, which if you want to get nerdy with me for just a second, you get to see some words that you might sound familiar. Elder comes from a Greek word, Presbyterus, right? Pastor from Poiemen, right? And uh, oversight from Episcopus. Now, two of those words might sound like denominations. Why? Well, because that's the leadership of the church. In the first century, they used those terms to describe the role of the overseer, right? So the overseer was supposed to be an elder. That's literally old guy, but what it means is somebody who is wise, somebody who, who can give right direction, Right? You're not going to ask, you don't want somebody who doesn't know what they're doing to direct your church because they're going to run it off a cliff, right? So you want someone who's got some wisdom, some experience, the elders there, right? The presbyteros, right? So you have the first thing, they're supposed to be elders, give that direction. The second thing, they're supposed to pastor the flock, poiemen. That's one of the roles of church leadership, the pastor. That is to protect the flock. That's what pastors do. It's what shepherds do, right? They go and make sure that wolves don't eat the sheep and make sure that the sheep get fed. That's what they do. That's part of the role. The last part is exercising oversight, episcopus, right? Oversight is kind of like a, a, an executive, right? Or somebody who is a, um, well, an overseer who makes the church productive so it's not just lazy. Like when you have a business and you hire a good uh, administrator, 
it makes the business productive, that's the job of the, the leadership, making sure the church isn't just lazy and not getting, and getting off task. So here we have three things that the church leadership is supposed to do. It's supposed to be directive, it's supposed to be protective, it's supposed to be productive. Does that sound like something to you? Masculinity! The three main qualities that God designed it. This is why God set it up this way. Now, look at the, the responsibilities in that. Are, as we, we see a church that's run this way, we have a people that are in the church as opposed to those that are in leadership to really care for the church. Pastoring a church is not about getting things my way. This is why you're supposed to, to look at the pastor and his family. If this is a guy who lords his authority over his children and his wife, do not make him a pastor. Ever, never, 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 never. If he, rules his, if he runs his family with no, any type of, of wisdom, right? if he just like, runs it off a cliff, makes bad decisions or things like this, he's not a good elder, don't make him a pastor. Ever, never, 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 ever, ever, never. Right? If this is a guy who doesn't have any competence, if you look at his life and he's not productive, he's not able to make things happen, right? He's not able to, to organize things, don't ever, ever, never make him a pastor. Right? Look at his family. This is the test. It's why it's the test. It was the role of the, the husband in a family, and it's the role of the pastor in a church. So look at them. We have a, a guy in our church who is up for nomination to be pastor this year. It, it's Floyd Denton. And I would say, look at his life. The reason he was nominated. Does he have these things? If you believe he does, then as a church, we'll affirm him. If you don't, then come talk to us. The thing is, is that this is the role because this is the responsibility that that role has. Now, what about Galatians? Because I have this question. Last time I preached this, somebody said, well, what about Galatians, Aaron? In Galatians chapter 3, we read, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And you see that line that says there's neither male nor free female? Yeah, I do too, right? That's in the Bible. That is also in the Bible, and it's an important passage. What is he talking about? Is this in Scripture saying that those things don't exist? Is that the focus of that passage? No. In fact, in context, in the passage, it's talking about unity. Galatians is about how do you have people who are legitimately Jews and people who are legitimately Gentiles worship Jesus together in the same space despite all of those cultural differences. And then Paul takes it one step further and he says, how about this? Men and women are different. How do we get them together? Or how about people that are slaves and people who are really, really rich? Can they come together in Christ? Yeah. This is not a denial of those things. In fact, the First Jerusalem Council dealt specifically about Jews and Gentiles and, didn't, and specifically said that Gentiles don't have to stop being Gentiles in order to become Christians. And likewise, Jews don't have to stop being Jews in order to be Christian, right? How amazing is that? And you know what? If you're in Christ and you are a slave, Scripture says you don't have to stop being a slave, that God will accept you right where you are. You are an equal member of God's kingdom, along with those who are wealthy. And those who are wealthy in the kingdom, Scripture doesn't say you have to just give up all your wealth and stop being wealthy. It says use your wealth, worship God, right, with that. But you can be an equal member of God's family. Same thing with men and women. Equal standing unity in Christ. That's what he's talking about. Not a denial of the fact that those things exist. In fact, let's remember that God made us male and female. That was his idea. And God made Jews and Gentiles, right? God's the one who chose Abraham. Like that was his idea. The whole books of Bible are about that. The whole slave and free thing, I think that was us. So we have this passage that goes on, that very next verse that says, you all belong to Christ. 
And you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. If you want to read Galatians 3 and says there's no males and females, read it in context. The very next, very next verse says that this is about unity. And in the body, we're supposed to have unity. So there's no favored classes in the church. In the church, because the culture doesn't understand God's ways, our culture today is going to look at the church and say, the church hates women. Nothing could be further from the truth. Women are made in the image of a holy God of whom we worship. And we affirm their femininity because it's a reflection of God and who he is. We don't diminish femininity like the rest of the world does, saying that it's somehow less than masculinity. That's crazy. We worship God. We, everyone has equal standing before him here. No favored classes. That's what it talks about. We're all equal in value. So let's carry that principle into the church, right? right for 2 Timothy, um, again, we, we read about in ch- uh, chapter 2. He says, uh, verse... Uh, Two, then I, I, verse two, chapter, uh, chapter two, verse one, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, right? We are to be in this together. Now, obviously, there he's talking about everybody outside, but also inside the body. We are to be unified, one in Christ. Now, as we go on from there, we say, okay, God, there's different roles for male and female. There's different roles in leadership in the church. What about... Uh, what about the uh, what about ladies? Well, what's the structure? Where where do we have in that? It says I'm not supposed to be in leadership. Does that mean that women don't have a place in the church? No. In there it says that they're supposed to serve, and they're supposed to serve according to that. A woman should learn in quietness and submission. Yes, like as a wife submits to her husband, but also in her character, in her nobility. In her femininity, to be able to nurture the church and to bring that beauty into the body. That's what we're supposed to do. And so uh, he points then to Adam and Eve, right? This is not a cultural prohibition, right? And let's think about this. If this was a cultural prohibition or a cultural thing that, that Paul wrote here to say, in the, in the time men and women needed to have a, a different structure or whatever because in that culture it made the most sense, for starters, it goes against everything we read before that we're not who culture says we are. But let's remember who this was written to. This was written to the church at Ephesus, right? And Ephesus uh, happened to have in it one of the wonders of, ancient wonders of the world, right? And in that ancient wonder was a temple, a shrine to worship a goddess. And in that goddess, there were priestesses that served and a high priestess that served in that. So if there was ever a time or a place in the ancient world in which you would have feminine leadership over the family of God, it would make the most sense there. This was not a cultural thing. In fact, it was very anti-cultural, counter-cultural to them at that time. God is showing about how he wants his church to, uh, to operate, to punctuate that. He points to what? He points to creation. He says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. This has nothing to do with culture. This has to do with design. And when God made Adam first and then Eve, God made us in his image. And there is nothing small about being made in the image of God. And so we also see in verse 14 the, the consequences of ignoring that. That God made us in his image, but Adam wasn't the one deceived. It was Eve. Adam didn't protect. He didn't provide, right? He didn't direct Eve in that. She, she didn't follow the lead of her husband. She took the fruit, and then Adam followed her. And what has happened? This. All of this happened. There's a consequence for us doing things what's right in our own eyes. 
in the family of faith is an opportunity to turn back. They say, God, it's not based upon what we deserve. It's not that I deserve as a man to have, I'm a better leader. I mean, there's, I'm sure, much better leaders in our church that are ladies. It has nothing to do about that. It has to do with the role and responsibility of how I reflect God. And I love how it says then, he doesn't just leave ladies on saying, well, then they were just awful bad. He says there's redemption in this. Look what he says is for ladies. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, uh, love holiness, and uh, propriety. Now, he's not saying that women are saved by giving birth to babies. Because Eve continued to show faithfulness, went back to God and was redemptive, she had children and she helped train those children how to serve and love God. And eventually we get down to Mary. And Mary had a child. And that child was a savior of the world. And if you ever want to see who, if God favors women and has a high space for him, uh, Jesus was not biologically attached to any man. It was Mary who was the one he got his chromosomes from. Think about that. And so, yeah, God brought salvation through this. So be faithful. Just be faithful in our role. That's what God wants us to do. Be faithful in our roles. Now, just as not all men are husbands, right? And so, remember, the, the thing in Scripture doesn't say women submit to men. That would be stupid. Like, if you're a gal and some guy says to do this and he's not your husband, don't obey him. That's, unless he's your boss, right? Then in the confines of your, or, or a governor or something, I guess. But, right, but that's the authority, not gender. The only time a woman has to submit to a man is if it's her husband. That's the only time. And you should only have one, right? And you get to choose that one. So make sure he's not a doof. Not all men are pastors either. So in the church, it's not as though all women just have to obey all the men of the church. That's dumb, right? You have a voice as to who your pastors are. Ladies, and we're going to have our annual meeting here pretty soon, and you have a voice into that. Pick men who run their families well, who shepherd well, who lay their lives down and, and lead with, with wisdom and kindness, the ones who show that they're going to lay themselves down for you. We need that. And so we get to have that voice. Now, uh, we also have, there's other roles in the church. It's not just leaders uh, as far as el- uh, um, elders. We also have deacons, and he does talk about deacons next. Verse 8, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. They must be attested, and if uh, there is nothing against them, then they can serve as deacons. All right, so here's the next rule. Deacons are kind of different. They're like holy project managers. They're like the kid in your house, maybe the oldest child who you can trust, right? You can just say, I give you authority, get her done, right? And, and we know that this, is, this role of leadership, of management is open to women because it says uh, right after that, in the same way, women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, temperate and trustworthy in everything, talking about the role of a deacon. So, Deacons and deaconesses, they are holy project managers in the church. They're brothers and sisters who are particularly good at, at leadership and at running something and have good faith. That's what they're supposed to have, right? And so we want to have deacons in the church who take important tasks of the church and run with them, make things happen. We read about them in Acts chapter 6, why deacons were chosen. It was a rule in the church. They assist the leaders. They assist the church. They serve the church through their service, their leadership abilities, uh, we have a, somebody in our church that's being nominated for deacon here. It's gonna, uh, that's uh, Jason Weber, who's running the AV. Uh, really important, getting the message out to people all over the world, right? Making sure somebody knows how to do that. As a church, he's been nominated. He's somebody who is trustworthy. He's somebody whose faith is solid. He's somebody who's competent. Can he do it? 
well, you get to tell us at, on our annual meeting. I encourage you to do that. And, um, right? But that's who we have as deacons. So we have these, this structure in the church, right? We have uh, uh, elders, and then we have deacons, right? And then we have everybody else. And what is everybody else? It's the family. You are the children of God, but you're not just the children of God. You're the ministers of God. You're the ones that God said, I want to see the world come through. Like, if you go to my household, Amy and me lay our life down for our son, right? It's really our house. As we set things up, we want to make sure he launches well. Thomas is not our slave. We, we lead well. He might disagree, but we, we lead well. We do our part to make sure that he can change the future. Just as we talked about last week, to shine like a star in the, in the crooked and depraved generation that our children have the ability to transform the future, right? So in our home, Amy and I make great sacrifices to make sure he has everything he needs, and it's the same way in the church. Pastors, lay ourselves down for you. Deacons, serve tirelessly so you have the ability to do what God has called you to do, to be his minister, to be his children, to be his agents of light and change in this world. That's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 28. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he tells his disciples, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. You know who he gave that to? Disciples. And who are you? Disciples of Jesus. That's your commission. My role as a pastor is to lay myself down, to equip you, to provide for you, to make sure that you have everything you need to do this. Because this is where the reward is. This is how culture in the world has changed. It's not when you come together and somehow pay a salary and, and, and have me somehow change the world, but when God changes the world to his children. That's why we have deacons to be able to support you, to, to do those things, the tasks, the, the leadership, so that way you can be equipped and man, you, can, you can serve the world and love the world and the power and the goodness of God. That's the glory position. It's about you being the transformational disciples that God has made you to be. And it goes all the way back. I love how this passage kind of mirrors the very first commission that God gave us in the Garden of Eden. You know what he said to Adam and Eve? Let me go back. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Isn't that very similar to what God, Jesus told his disciples to do? Be blessed and to multiply. Except for we don't just multiply biologically, we bring the very seeds of eternal life. And God blesses you, and he sends you. He's given you his Holy Spirit, he's given you gifts, and he's given you a church family to, to be a, a hub, but also a place of sending so that you can transform this world, which is why we talk about we want to be disciples that build generational transformational disciples. We want you to grow in Christ so that you can see your life change, but then you can see your neighbor's lives change and your children's lives change and your, and your friends' lives change, that we can see this world being taken from brokenness and darkness into the amazing light of Christ. This is what it's about. This is the transformation that we've all been wanting, right? It doesn't come through an election. It comes through a relationship with Jesus. So how do you apply that? Well, on your connection card, I have a couple of steps, things that you can do today, this week, to begin growing in that. The first thing, and, and if you're online, it's magically right here. For the rest of you, it's not because I'm not magic. It's on that green connection card. I'm going to encourage you to read uh, 2 Corinthians, um, or to memorize 2 Corinthians 5.17. Remember that you are a new creation in Christ. God is doing something amazing in you. It's not something he has, it might happen in the future. It has happened, and it's in you now. 
You are part of the new creation. You are transformed already, and you are the agent of transformation even now. Something else I'm going to challenge you to do is why don't you read 1 Timothy? You saw me read kind of back and forth in it. Read it. Read it in the way that it was written. See how God wants his church to be set up. Also, if you are a member of our church, something you commit to do is attend our members meeting. It's going to be in a couple weeks on the 21st of February. And for those of you online, this year we are going to do it on Zoom. Uh, We've got to figure out how we can do all of that with our bylaws because you're supposed to be a president. We don't want to make anybody sick. So we're going to figure out the techno wizardry. So if you want to attend and you're online, let us know. So we need your email address and other contact stuff to make sure that happens. But uh, if you're a member, what we're going to talk about is what God did this last year, which was a crazy year, so you won't want to miss that. But also, plans for the next year. How are we going to transform this, this world, right, on our community in Christ? If you are not a member of the church, why not? There's a church family here for you. There's a place to belong. If you're a part of God's family, he wants you to be part of his local family. And so my challenge for you is why don't you attend our next membership class? When will that be? COVID knows, right? I don't know. But put it down on there. We'll find if we get enough people, we'll find a, a creative time and we'll get it going. So that way you can learn about who we are, what does it mean to be a member of a church, and how to join. Hopefully I've given you something to commit to. I know I went a little bit long today. I apologize. Let me pray for you and then we will finish up with some good worship. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your love, your mercy, and the fact that you made us in your image so that we could reflect you well. That is a holy and a high calling. Help us as this church to do that well, not according to our design, but Father, to yours. Father, I pray as we do that, that you would enable our leaders, our elders to serve well in a loving way, high love, high structure, Father, like Christ, not lording authority over others, but laying their lives down to see this church family grow in health and in goodness. Father, we pray for our deacons and deaconesses that you would empower them to manage this church and all the great ministries, that you would empower their leadership to do good things, that we could be equipped as your children to serve this community in such a way we see our world transformed with your light. Lord, we pray for the commitments we've made today. Help us to follow those and to put those into practice in our life this week so that we can see you more alive in our lives. Father, we also pray for our tithes and our offerings that we worship you with. Would you please use them to bring yourself glory, to bring your kingdom to the ends of the earth and beyond. We pray all of that in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.